Hi, welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. On this particular episode of BTS Podcast, I am digging into the request made by comedian Jessica Michelle Singleton on episode three of the podcast. So if you're familiar with the podcast, you know that at the end of every conversation with a guest, I ask them what they would like to hear a future episode on. Jessica Michelle Singleton called out the idea of hearing an episode on funeral home directors and or assisted suicide. This particular episode is with funeral home director Amy Cunningham. It just so happened that shortly after Jessica and my conversation, I was reading The New Yorker and came across this really great article by Mallory Rice. The link to it is in the description of this episode talking to Amy about the workshop she leads on writing condolence letters and sort of her work in the funeral home space. This episode definitely warrants a trigger warning. We talk, obviously, a lot about death, but we also talk about just like very um, sort of unexpected deaths that she has to deal with, um, which include murder, suicide, and infant deaths. Um, Those are really difficult for a lot of people, and so I just want to give you a heads up. You'll hear me tee up the question about that and feel free to skip past or stop whatever you need to do, but I just felt that you should know that is discussed in this. I'm really excited to share the conversation that Amy and I have. It helped me kind of understand a lot of things that um, I would have never thought of around when somebody is dying in the hospital or in hospice care and different reasons about the purposes of funerals and uh, also just a lot I didn't know about mortuary school. So I really enjoyed talking to Amy. She's really amazing. I think it's very exciting to talk to people when they have shifted careers later on in life. She was 54 when she left her career as a journalist to pursue her current career. And I think that's just very inspirational. I think a lot of us, myself included, sometimes at any age, we all just sort of feel like that's all we're doing with our lives and uh, nothing will ever change. And that can be scary. And so talking to somebody who has made large changes in her life and whose family supported her in that, I think is really great. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash BTS podcast and become a monthly contributor. You can feel free to Venmo me at atlanae-cook. Your contribution to my caffeine habit is greatly appreciated. Or use any of the promo codes I plug. Um, A few services that I really enjoy include Hotel Tonight, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is for hotel bookings. And I will say that they have a really great selection at totally reasonable prices. You can use code LCOOK61 to save on Hotel Tonight. You can also book a massage using Soothe. Soothe will bring a masseuse to your home, which I love. You can use code LZLRZ at checkout to save on that. Thank you so much for listening. Please do subscribe, rate, and review. If you don't want to subscribe, feel free to just rate your review. That is deeply, deeply appreciated. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hello, this is Lene Cook. You are listening to BTS Podcast. And if you listen to the episode with Jessica Michelle Singleton, you'll know that when she was asked what she would like to hear a future episode on, she brought up funeral home directors. And it just so happened that within a few months, I was reading The New Yorker and I saw this really beautiful article with uh, Amy Cunningham, who has agreed to be on the show. Amy is based out of Brooklyn in New York. Um, She is the funeral home director. Oh, I'm reading your title right now. Can you actually explain your exact title? Let's start off. Hi, thank you for having me on, Lene. Um, I am a funeral director in New York City, and I'm also a funeral home owner. The name of my firm is Fitting Tribute Funeral Services, and I specialize in eco-friendly burials, 
uh, cremations at our historic cemetery, uh, which has a crematory within it, Greenwood uh, in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. and um, also home funerals where deceased people are laid out in a position of honor in their home after their death in the old fashioned uh, way, like an Irish wake. Interesting. Yeah, I, I've heard my grandmother's from Columbia and we've discussed um, when relatives have passed when she was growing up. And I guess, <laughs> I guess for whatever reason, I didn't find it particularly odd. But now that you're saying that, I'm going like, oh yeah, we would never, because I, I sort of associated it with like, oh, that was the old way of doing it. Mm -hmm. um, and now I'm like, I, I just also can't imagine doing that in a modern home yeah. and more so what that is like for attendees, but that is fascinating. Or in an apartment in New York City. Right. It's really that. Quite, quite something. It's ambitious, but also incredibly beautiful. And uh, I, would, I grew up a rather prim Presbyterian with mostly closed caskets. So when I started yeah. getting my trainings in the home funeral, I was astonished at what uh, people can do, but I've, through experience now, um, come to realize, my God, it's incredible. If someone is dying in the care of hospice in an apartment or a home, and then when they die, there really is no emergency or rush to lurch for the telephone and have funeral directors come and whisk your loved one away, that you can light candles, tell stories, bathe the body, shroud, uh, do all kinds of very beautiful uh, things, um, express your love and gratitude in a relaxed way in the setting where you're most comfortable. So yep. home funerals are awesome, and uh, it's always a, a, a real privilege to help people uh, have them. That's beautiful. Yeah, that, um, and we can get into this later, but sure. one thing that I am definitely interested in, in talking to you about, because one thing I find that's fascinating is like on a cultural level, if we look at society over, you know, decades and centuries, um, I would venture to say that right now at this point in time, uh, the general public is m more removed from death than mm -hmm. ever. And so it's just interesting to me because I think, you know, historically, if you look at most societies, there was a specific person with a function similar to yours in, in um, helping someone bring, helping bring people into the afterlife and, and manage sort of those logistics and rituals and um, what have you. At the same time, families were also very involved. And so I think now we've sort of we've removed ourselves from just like these very um, communal things. And I, yeah. you know, um, death is one of them. Food is another one of them. Like we don't know where our food comes from or how it gets made into bread. Like if you ask most people how bread is made, no idea. Right. <laughs> um, our trash is another one. Like there's all these things that are actual needs that have been so commoditized that we then are very stripped of like an understanding of how it works. Yep. Yep. I think old-fashioned funeral directors felt that they should spare the family any sadness or trauma. And in mm -hmm. essence, they were uh, charging a price for taking the funeral away from you uh, out of kindness. Um, I really don't think it was sinister, but a lot of the old male funeral directors wanted to spare families' experiences. And they're astonished to find today 
that no, the baby boom generation wants to see more, do more, experience more, grieve more, and um, they want death to be less of a medical event and more of a communal experience, just as you said, to bring it back yeah. into the family's control. And uh, uh, they're entitled to that. And I would argue that it helped their bereavement process and that the year following the death um, might have um, memories that are very positive about the death itself and how it was managed and people mm -hmm. might heal quite a bit better after uh, experiences that they uh, that they controlled themselves to some degree absolutely yeah I think um, I've, I've noticed that a, a generational difference in communication like my the way that my grandparents were communicated to by their parents um, and then thus my parents by, by their parents. And I think uh, one thing that's, I don't know if you know who uh, Allie Wentworth is, the comedian, but um, she does a lot of work around um, depression and suicide awareness and stuff like that. And she talks about how she asked her parents, like, did, does depression run in the family? You know, and it, presumably because she was dealing with this, right? And her parents were like, no, 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 not at all. <laughs> and she but didn't all didn't my grandparents kill themselves and they went oh they died of natural causes mm -hmm. and it's like well yeah I mean it's I guess that is a natural natural cause but then any form of death is a natural cause and like there was this really big disconnect like I know I've just seen different ways that like you know my parents have been damaged by like a relative passing and then just no one really saying anything. And that person just wasn't at the next reunion yeah. and people just didn't want to talk about it, you know, or they just pretended that that person didn't exist, hadn't existed. And, and just the emotional toll that that's taken on the siblings of that person and, and the cousins and whoever, because it really, yeah, it, yeah. People need something to hold on to. It's not sparing anybody. Exactly. It's not a, not an emotional gift that you're giving somebody by letting them. That's know. really cool. You're bringing that up because I feel like radical honesty has a very powerful role at the end of life. And we're seeing everyone engage in um, more honest conversation, even in the funeral ceremony itself, in the eulogies, mm -hmm. people are talking about mental illness and alcoholism very publicly. Uh, wow. And openly and wanting to air it to as part of their healing process to say this was the cause of death. We're reckoning with it. Um, we're seeking to understand it. Sometimes suicides are uh, presented as, um, uh, you know, not a, certainly not a choice, but a, 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 an example of mental illness stealing someone's life from them. Yeah. And that comes up at the podium in the funeral service itself. Um, and uh, it's very healthy, I think. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I agree. So we have, uh, we have some questions to dig into. Excellent. Yeah, I know. <laughs> There's a lot. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm sort of going to, uh, so Amy is one of the few guests that I have um, discussed questions with ahead of time. And I'm really grateful for that because also she added some questions I would have not known to ask. And if you're here clicking around, it's because I'm dog sitting right now. <laughs> and I have hardwood floors. And this uh, very cute Samoyed is a curious pup and probably sad to be missing out of the conversation. Good. So <laughs> we, we'll include um, everybody in the, in the talk. Oh, well, thank you. That's very generous. Uh, so let's kind of do this a little bit chronologically to, to start with. So you, um, 
are a writer and you left a magazine and online journalism to be a funeral director at 54 and you thought that you wouldn't write for a while. Um, what caused you to launch your blog, theinspiredfuneral.com, in 2011? Um, I was in mortuary school learning so much and astonished by what American consumers didn't know that um, while I thought I wasn't going to write uh, anymore, or certainly I was looking forward to a break, uh, when I really started delving into my education and uh, what's happening in the funeral today, I felt like, holy cow, I just got to go to the computer and start blogging about all this because each little story seemed so significant, each new kind of casket. Um, I, had, I was just uh, awakened by <laughs> daily epiphanies, and it felt to me that news stories were out in the streets, and all I had to do was pick them up. And uh, so um, my little blog got quickly noticed, and then I realized, well, you know, this is, uh, it's a good lesson for all of us to tell any young person that if you can write, you can kind of catapult yourself into a position of leadership within any field. So yeah. uh, that's pretty much what happened, and my little blog was quickly um, a success. And uh, every day I find new stories to tell um, from uh, bits of funeral music to advice on products to uh, new ways of managing ceremony and ceremony structure. So there's a lot to the funeral. And I have always been a lover of uh, uh, rites of passage. I took my own wedding vows very seriously. My husband's Jewish. I was, uh, as I said, sort of a progressive Christian, I sometimes call myself a kundalini practicing Buddhist Presbyterian. And at the time <laughs> I started mortuary school, I was also on the board of our synagogue. So I have a lot of, um, uh, I have a lot of range in, in the American uh, religious scene and the spiritual marketplace and the, a lot of people are secular today, too, or mixing it up. So with that mm. kind of background, I thought um, I was blogging about um, Buddhist meditation and uh, uh, yoga and things like that at the end of my magazine and uh, internet writing uh, phase of life. So when I got into mortuary school, it, it wasn't a huge surprise to my closest friends or my husband that funeral service would be a, a big interest and then an incredible passion. That's beautiful. And what a, what I love about that is like the sort of steam that you'd lost and you were like, well, I'm done with that chapter. <laughs> and then really, you know, I think anytime you have new stimulation um, and just new sort of input, like the way that I break up my time because I, um, I do freelance work and, and consulting and stuff. And so uh, I had needed to bring some structure to my life and, and shifting gears every day was not the way to do it. Like I just couldn't go, well, I'll just do an hour of music and then I'll do, you know, two hours of podcasting stuff and then I'll switch gears and write my newsletter. Like it just doesn't work that way. And so what I do is I have input days and output days. Smart. And I schedule time where it's like, okay, this day is a day where I'm just reading and listening to other podcasts on my run and maybe running some errands and listening to podcasts and doing research. And then the output day, I kind of digest all of that 
and figure out how to apply it to what I'm working on. Um, but yeah, that is fascinating. And what, do you mind sharing, um, what caused you to leave journalism and go into, uh, what you're doing now? Yeah, it was really my, uh, there's the deep answer and then there's kind of a superficial answer. The, um, the precipitating event was my 94-year-old father's death in the care of hospice in 2009 uh, down in South Carolina, where we worked with a very Southern funeral director that everybody down there knew and trusted. And, uh, you know, Southern towns still have kind of a funeral protocol in place that's old-fashioned and nice. So we had a very positive experience, actually, uh, embellishing my father's funeral plan and making the end of life memorial event even nicer than he ever would have imagined. Though mm -hmm. I came back to Brooklyn and said to my husband, damn, you know, I'm really sad dad is dead, but we truly aced that funeral. We really did a great job on that. We hit it out of the park. I wonder what it would be like to uh, help other people manage end of life events and inspire them to have a funeral that terrific. Uh, mm -hmm. The deeper cause is that when I really look at my life uh, and even look at my magazine articles, there's a line of grief running through them. Uh, some of it though, I wasn't even present to because um, my father's two brothers died in World War II. Their pictures were on the wall as I was growing up. And then uh, an infant boy, a, a son, a brother, uh, died at the age of 13 months the year prior to my birth. So wow. my parents were grieving when I came into the household. And yeah. uh, that's the deep reason I think I know something just, it's in my body. I grew up around a lot of loss. And yeah. uh, I think I... <laughs> In my own funny way, as even as a little girl, I was lifting people up or trying to inspire them to get back into life again. Not that I uh, try to make my funerals happy. I try to make my the funerals I help people with um, transformational in some small or even larger way and uh, help people recognize their own resilience and ability to cope with unbearable loss sometimes. And uh, that's, that's what I'm devoted to now. And uh, it all makes sense. Another just little side note and aside that is nice for any of your listeners who are struggling right now in their own lives, in their careers, in their 20s, 30s, or 40s. The, when I got into mortuary school, I was 54. My kids were in high school. I was happily married. But it felt to me like all of a sudden my whole life made sense and that everything that I'd previously considered a failure was coming back to nourish me. And so that was neat. And that's the great thing anyone has to look forward to in their 50s and 60s. I'm 64 now. And uh, uh, there's a magnificent connection uh, to understanding myself. And uh, I feel like I finally hit the, the road and I'm on it and it's very fulfilling and an exciting time. That is definitely very encouraging. Uh, out of curiosity, did you have a talk with your kids? And um, presumably you had a talk with your husband before that, but then um, how did you present this shift in career to your kids? Yeah, um, they were excited and guarded 
And uh-huh. I think they had already seen me as an individual who was, I don't know, I think my kids sometimes find me a bit of a kook, maybe, or a, a, an outlier. Um, Are you going to send them this episode? Yeah, and I'll have to, yeah. Yeah, uh, please do. Uh, they're very impressed that I have a, a life on social media and uh, uh, followers and such. But um, my husband uh, was incredibly kind and supportive, but he did sit me down uh, before mortuary school started in, in a bit of a condescending way and said, look, I just want to make sure you're really serious, you know, that this isn't just a thing you're going to try and then reject. So um, that talk actually, though, was productive and helpful to me. And I was truly committed. And I said, yes, I want to do this. I want to move forward. This is it. He didn't, he didn't uh, have like, I'm just imagining a uh, parody of beauty school dropout. <laughs> but, right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, that that is fascinating to me, and I'm I'm sure your kids are impressed. Like I would be, yeah. I'm already so proud of my mom for like going out and working after nearly 30 years of not having a job. Yeah. Um, and if she found her stride, yeah. and especially like was if she if there was a New Yorker article that my mom was like <laughs> quoted or mentioned, I would lose my mind. I would blow it up and frame <laughs> it in my house. It would be wheat pasted to a wall. <laughs> yep. All oh, that's happened, and it's been very good. That's amazing. So, um, okay. So then let's talk a little bit about mortuary school. Um, how hard is it? And did it prepare you properly for doing what you're doing now? Mortuary school is surprisingly tough and in the most bizarre way. Um, it's basically test prep. Mm. (coughs) Pardon me. It requires a lot of rote memorization. And I was an English major and someone who'd never been asked to memorize much at all. And that was surprising to me and um, an incredible brain drain. I was taking uh, supplements to, you know, be able to remember things. Um, You have to memorize and know every part of the body, every bone, every muscle. Um, The emphasis is on uh, embalming training which I feel is a little less necessary today than it once was. I'm happy to have studied it, but I was astonished at the um, emphasis on embalming. And uh, then there's some fascinating, exciting parts, but they don't go very deep. Uh, The history of funeral service, uh, the history of various religious traditions and the funeral, you know, how you walk a casket down the uh, church aisle in a Roman Catholic mass. You have to, really know and master all those things. So I met some great friends. Um, I was uh, not the oldest to start in my class, but I was the oldest to finish and graduate. And uh, I was hanging out with kids in their 20s, telling them not to drink so much. And uh, I think I even got a little award at graduation for being uh, the person who uh, uh, sort of inspired the class. Um, uh, So that was sweet. And um, it, it's kind of a necessary thing, but boy, if I could only, I would love to uh, re, be a voice in rethinking mortuary training. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been told that the system's so uh, kind of goofed up that uh, it's almost beyond any healing. Um, 
and it's just something that everyone has to get through in order to get to their residency. Some states, uh, uh, it's more difficult than others. Uh, I'm in New York, which is a very difficult uh, uh, system, uh, and the uh, but we're oh, there's just too much to say about it, Lene. Um, in short. Uh, it's frustrating, but and it's also expensive. Uh, mortuary school can be twenty-four thousand dollars today. I get a lot of letters from young women wanting to know uh, if they should go through it, and um, it's a mixed bag because you're not guaranteed work at the end, and sometimes your mortuary school won't even help you very much to find uh, a job afterwards. And uh, the residency requirements are uh, tough. You work a long day and often for not very much money. Uh, I, people with young children or any kind of drama in the background of their lives really struggle in mortuary school. It is surprising at how much you have to stay on task and very focused. So I don't mean to discourage anyone, but you really have to want to be a funeral director to become one, I found. Well, it sounds a little bit almost like medical school, you know, that it's, it's very taxing. It definitely is not if, for if you have other things going on in your life mm -hmm. and like the financial burden as well as what the type of money you're making afterwards. Um, you know, it, it sounds, it's like it's another part of the education system, um, especially in higher education that is overpriced, not preparing people properly. Right. And, and really not taking into some consideration. Of it, some of it is dumb. Um, it's almost yeah. like there were a couple of times when the teacher would say, here's the way the board exam wants you to answer this question, but here's actually the right way to do it in embalming. And um, I, 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 it's, a, it's its own show to talk about mortuary education. <laughs> but, um, but I think and hope it will be modernized and updated and that there'll be more about the emotional lives of the people you're serving and more help to. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder if similar to the healthcare industry and, and other industries, if as, as um, it becomes more common to sort of do things on your own mm -hmm. and uh, perhaps mortuary schools start to feel the, um, the financial sort of pain of that, of, you know, I think as, as it affects the industry, like I, so it used to be that getting a master's was like, you know, you had to be accepted and it was this whole thing. And now I'm getting advertisements from all of these like prestigious um, universities encouraging me to apply and saying, I need not take the GRE or like whatever it is that you're supposed to take. And I'm, I'm going like, yeah, cause you know, I don't actually need a master's. Like we're past that point now where to be taken seriously in most industries, you need that higher education. Um, but I, I imagine that mortuary schools will be impacted as people start to take things into their own hands and people just go like, oh yeah, maybe I don't need that certification to figure this out. Or, you know, mm -hmm. the money will always eventually change things. Unfortunately, it's not done on a, on a moral basis, which kills me right <laughs> right so mortuary school is frustrating and, and you do do yeah. things like uh put pancake makeup on each other's faces uh you model ears and and uh, noses out of wax for reconstructive work if you have someone 
who's died of a traumatic uh, injury related to an automobile accident. Um, wow. But, um, so they're definitely interesting experiences. And, uh, but again, it, it just uh, was a frustration as much as anything else and almost like a hazing sometimes uh, in terms of the difficulty, the number of hours you have to put in and how hard you have to focus to pass the tests. You have every, uh, most states have a national board and then a state law test. And mm -hmm. again, I'm not knocking it, but it does need to be uh, adapted and updated for sure. The whole, the whole, the whole system. And I hope it is. Yeah. It's just hitting me that only when I started going to the conferences of the National Home Funeral Alliance and learned about oh. home funerals, did I really get trained in how to lovingly care for a deceased person, how to touch them, how to move them. Uh, there's all, I had so many realizations about the beauty of the work outside of mortuary school. And that's, I guess, as it should be. You always learn more out in real life. But uh, right. I'm really glad I exposed myself to other trainings, other sorts of uh, funeral workers or end-of-life caretakers, and got a, a really broader scope. I had some savings at the time, and that certainly helped me. I, I feel for anyone trying to raise a family and uh, manage uh, mortuary education costs and then face the job market which isn't always uh, welcoming. I'm sure in journalism you saw uh, like just sort of that male dominated field. And then it's, did you find that the mortuary and like the funeral industry in general is more male dominated and that like, was there any sort of gender discrimination there or sexism? Well, it was, that's a great question. And I'm happy to report that there've been significant changes in the eight years I've been actively working as a funeral director. Mm -hmm. And I used to complain about barriers to entry uh, when I started uh, because it did feel like women who weren't interested in a lot of embalming work were not welcomed. However, two things have happened. Uh, young women who are incredibly gifted and incredibly strong are coming into the industry and they can do it all. They're not balking and avoiding embalming practicums and they're great embalmers. So there are full funeral directors that are female today, impressing the gentlemen who've been running the show. And then Good. also um, women who are a little older, maybe not wanting to embalm, but interested in ceremony structure and what makes a good funeral. They're becoming funeral directors and celebrants, and they're mm. magnificent and uh, of real use to uh, a needy industry that needs to bring ritual back and uh, mixed faith ceremony to uh, Americans who really want a funeral that is personalized and meaningful. Mm -hmm. So uh, women are coming in from all directions and uh, I'm on a Facebook uh, group that's fantastic. It's called The Future of Funeral Directing is Female. And uh, I do believe it. I think women are flooding into the industry and really changing things and impressing the guys who were previously skeptical. And that's, I've seen changes in the last six years of men welcoming women in, realizing, yep, we need them. And they're say that is one theme that has come up again and again on this podcast. And um, probably because I've had a lot of women on, but 
but um, it's been fascinating to have conversations with people across industries about how women are really shifting conversations and shifting norms. Um, Brittany Hicks was on and she, she spoke about that in terms of um, the supply chain in fashion and operations and sourcing. And then another girl, Jessica was on speaking about that in terms of um, like cut and fit in fashion mm. and like just how men didn't understand that women would want something like rent the runway. Like there's just right. these like big gaps in understanding of like, well, why would you want that? And I, and so, yeah, it is, it is really fascinating to see the way that just different, you know, it's not even like a one is better than the other. It's just everyone respecting their own um, value proposition and what they value and their own priorities. Um, did mortuary school prepare you emotionally at all? Like how did they, were, were there conversations around sort of the, because this is such a, it's not just the behind the scenes of before the funeral. It's yeah. really also so much like in contact with families and people who are experiencing potentially the worst time of their lives. Mm -hmm. I think the real emotional training started during my residency. After I graduated from mortuary school, I had a year-long residency in a funeral home, and I was trained by a man in his 40s who was very kind and appreciative of who I was uh, and told me things uh, that were useful, but sometimes things I had to grow with and think about because I'm not sure he was right about everything. He used to say, uh, now, don't get close to people. Don't get too close to people because, you know, cumulatively, a funeral director can't live with that kind of pain because you'll carry it with you uh, for the rest of your life and it'll damage the way you serve the next family. And I guess that is true. Sometimes after a funeral, I find myself getting lost in the grocery store parking lot in my car or realizing that um, I'm much more keyed up and stressed than I had even realized. And that the weight of grief that the family was experiencing has somehow gone onto my shoulders. So uh, all of that, um, to be in a funeral home as a resident, that's the time you kind of get a grip and figure out how to balance your own life and your own emotional needs and your family's needs with the needs of the families you're helping in, in your work. Uh, there's no easy answer or right answer, but there is, a um, if you don't, sort of protect yourself a little bit. You can carry a lot of grief with you when you're doing, you know, 40 to 70 funerals in a year. I imagine that it's also an ongoing process too, that it's not something that it's like a closed book on like, well, I figured out how to manage emotions around my job and funerals now. And that's it. I'm sure it's always shifting and changing. Um, is there anything that you've done for yourself to help you manage those emotions better, like give yourself time afterwards or have sort of a rule about like a buffer zone in terms of like uh, when you're done with one, maybe you, you know, spend an hour by yourself or right. meditate or something right. like that. It's definitely a, a good thing to have a yoga practice or a meditation practice or a way of calming yourself daily, not only between funerals. Uh, and uh, yoga is very important for me and also I like Julia Cameron's idea of uh, in the book The Artist's Way she talks about mm -hmm. taking yourself out on an artist's date um, so I still think of myself as an artist and 
um, and uh, just going to galleries or walking home a different way or walking the dog into a new neighborhood or um, uh, certainly you got to take vacations. I actually haven't been doing that quite enough. Uh, mm -hmm. Writing is important and also increasingly, I think, um, speaking to other people in funeral service or end-of-life work or even the birth doulas I know. Uh, we just, uh, the friendships I've made through the work I now do have been very intense and very fruitful uh, for me uh, to just decompress and talk to other funeral celebrants, funeral directors, uh, midwives, and people uh, in that kind of work, also psychotherapists. All, yeah. all that is good stuff. Um, and then writing about it uh, privately and posting what I can online that is helpful to people. That's beautiful. I love that. Yeah, the, the community around that, I'm sure, is really intense, but also such a necessary part for everybody in, um, you know, sort of having an outlet, but then also finding new ways to manage their own thoughts and emotions and sort of sharing, I call them sort of like mental frameworks yes. uh, that help each other frame things differently. Uh, and, and just sort of, because that is a lot of really heavy things that are also not things most uh, people want to talk about. Right. So it's a right. stuff that most people are a little bit allergic. Definitely. I don't know if I could have done this as a younger woman because you definitely have to be very forgiving of yourself because inevitably when you're meeting with a the family, they've had a tragic loss that they're coping with. Kleenex is on the table. They're crying as you're speaking to them. It, it, it's easy. Uh, uh, I've had a little psychoanalytic uh, training. I went to a psychoanalytic institute when I was pregnant in my 30s, and mm -hmm. that training comes back to be very helpful to me. Um, uh, just, But you still, when you um, say something to a grieving person and you feel like you didn't quite hit it right, that you were just yeah. a little off, it's very easy to be so hard on yourself and get into the car and say, oh man, I, that wasn't exactly the right thing that they needed in that moment and you have to right. realize that sometimes they weren't even listening and they didn't hear it other times yeah. that even if they did hear it they've already forgiven you because they know that everyone struggles around language for loss right. and um so you really have to bathe yourself into in a, a sort of i'm doing the best i can uh it's going to be okay no one's judging me truly and uh and uh, there are other ways you can, if you really did misstate something, you, you can redeem yourself in other acts of kindness as the experience continues. Absolutely. Yeah, there was um, one of my closest friends. She and I have been friends since the second grade. And so, of course, I have been close with her family my whole life. And her mom passed a few years ago. And I... I knew her mom wasn't doing well, so I'd actually flown down to go see, spend time with my friend and then also see her mother in the hospital because she was like a second, you know, she was like another parent to me growing up. And uh, she passed, the, I think, the day I landed. And so then when I was going to go see her, it ended up that I was going to go see my friend and, and her grandmother. And they live in a really hot part of, of California. And I was driving out and I went like, oh my gosh, I totally forgot to get flowers. So I stopped at like the nearest grocery store and I got flowers. And then when I got back to my car, the battery had died. 
And I was like, maybe a quarter of a mile from her house. And it's also sort of like in the middle, in the, it's like a suburb of a suburb of a suburb. So it's sort of in the middle of nowhere. Like it would take a significant amount of time for this problem to be solved. And, and I went to call her and then I panicked because I didn't want to say my battery died. <laughs> What's the language? What's the language to use? Right. And so I call her and I was like, hey, this is really awkward and I don't mean to like be a burden on you at all because you're going through this, but I want to let you know I'm, I was down the street because I didn't plan ahead and I was picking up flowers and I got back to the car and the first thing that popped in my head is like, and the battery is no longer with us. And I was like, no, 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 that's not right either. And I had to like self-edit and go, and the battery is not going to be working on this car anymore. How did that go over? She went, oh, so the battery died. And I was like, I was like well, I didn't want everyone to say it. But yes. I'm glad I'm a writer in the funeral business because language comes up over and over and the words you use and the things you don't say. Um, what I've found is I've just quit. Uh, I did this long ago. I never say I'm sorry for your loss. Um, mm. All I say is a funeral director over and over, and it's a refrain when I get nervous, I, I go back to it. I am here for you. I am here mm. for you. Even if you say it five times, they're processing it and feeling um, comforted by that. So right. uh, everybody else can, is saying, I'm sorry for your loss and my condolences. Uh, I, don't, I don't go into that. It seems insincere because they know I'm saying yeah. it every day. Uh, but I am here for you is what they want to hear and what they need to know. And I think that's useful for everybody uh, comforting a grieving person, you know. Yeah, and it's more actionable. Yes. It lets somebody know that like, because I'm sorry, or my condolences are sort of, um, sort of like when you're talking to somebody and you say, have a good day, you know, that's the last person, that's the last time you're going to talk to that person that day. Right. And I'm here for you leaves a little bit more open. Yeah. Like I'm not closing the door on this subject or this conversation. Yeah. yeah. I'm here for you in an, like in an indefinite sort yeah. of way. And I, and I know you must be hurting. Uh, you know, I'm here and I want to listen. I'm looking forward mm -hmm. to knowing more of her story. Uh, all mm -hmm. of that is, is, is good, good uh, material, good fodder. Uh, Speaking of which, um, in the New Yorker article, which I'll link to in the description of this, uh, you'd mentioned that you teach classes on writing a good condolence letter, mm -hmm. essentially. And I love that because it is something that is, uh, it's something I've put a lot of thought into over the years. Where can people learn more about those classes? Because you, you do a few different workshops and classes, is that correct? Mm -hmm. And I study historic letters of condolence to figure out which ones were effective and and useful, helpful to the recipient, and which ones failed in one way or another. But here's the deal on condolence letters, and here's the comfort there. They're all gonna be failures. No condolence letter, or almost no condolence letter, will perfectly fit the needs of the reader in that moment. But it's the act of writing them, no matter what you say, that's the beauty of the practice. So I think condolence letter writing is just a practice and not to get too stressed out about, oh, what can I say that will be of comfort? Just say uh, that you love them and that you're here for them and keep it simple. And the act of writing it uh, on a card or a note by hand is beauty enough. You know, give yourself a break. Just do it. I love that. 
mm-hmm. bringing Nike, the Nike slogan. to <laughs> <laughs> It's really true. It works for a lot of things in a lot of different contexts. I couldn't agree with you more. So in, in looking at some of our other questions here, um, and this is, um, this is something that feels very odd to ask and I don't, there's not really a delicate way to ask it. So I'm just going to go ahead and jump into it. Um, but of sort of like the, the really difficult things that we deal with in terms of death, um, you know, uh, murder, suicide and, and infant loss, um, which is, I don't know, which is harder. I mean, what is like, what is, what's your experience in that and how sort of, what are the differences in that? Yeah, infant loss is mysterious in how difficult it is because one part of your brain might say, uh, oh, the little individual didn't have a life to grieve, but that is the nature of the grief itself, the loss of all opportunity uh, and uh, the nothingness that seems to uh, remain after an infant's death is very sad and complex and hard to recover from. So it's like its own study. Uh, There's a woman named Amy Wright Glenn who actually trains people just on infant loss. Mm. Um, And uh, that rocks the house when a baby is in a funeral home in the back uh, preparation area. Uh, everyone in the funeral home is kind of awakened by how sad that is. So it really transforms the energy of a whole uh, funeral home. Um, Suicides are more frequent and so tragic. And um, again, like we said uh, earlier, sort of a a byproduct of, of mental illness and the times we live in, it does seem like more young people are, are dying and dying quickly after you know the 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 it, it, the uh, suicidal ideation moves very fast for some young people. Mm. So the uh, parents and family are just adjusting to the fact that a, an emotional problem exists, and then the suicide takes place before they've even been prepared to contemplate that. So that's hard. The funerals are powerful and magnificent, and we would hope to uh, that they'd be. T- able to teach everyone else in attendance, you know, how to uh, comfort someone who might be having a hard time and how to uh, encourage them to get help before it gets really bad. That is something um, that has been on. So there was a really interesting uh, brief TED talk with a psychologist or or maybe I think he's a psychologist um, in Zimbabwe who, because of the nature of, um, you know, so many rural areas, and it's really hard to get around, that there was a patient of his who had attempted suicide, and then she was hospitalized, and he told the family, when she's out of the hospital, please bring her here so we can talk, and then he didn't hear from them, and then I think maybe a week and a half later, she tried again, and and did pass away, and when he asked the family, why didn't you bring her here, they said, well, we couldn't, you know, it's like a several hour bus ride to where you are in the city and we couldn't afford the bus fare. And so what he's done is he started training grandmothers on basic um, therapy skills. And what I find so fascinating because there is the, um, there's that, I can't remember what it's called, but it is a, uh, it's really horrible that um, there is that effect that when you know someone who has um, 
taken their life that you in fact rather than learning a lesson from that and going like oh i saw how badly it affected everybody that it in fact has the opposite effect that it makes people more likely to consider that and to do that um and they see it especially in native communities um there was a community studied in alaska that they have like one of the highest suicide rates and it's this um I wish I could remember the word of it, but it is an effect and it makes me wonder sometimes if that's, you know, and I was going to say young people, but like people my age, because I've lost, I was in fact thinking about it yesterday and realized that in the last year I've lost about a dozen friends. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. And, um, and it really, and it does make me wonder if it's that effect in play or, or like what it is exactly, because there's also no way that our that our lives are harder today than they've ever been historically. You know what I mean? Like it just, I just, um, I, I grapple with that a lot on, um, not just dealing with the emotions in the aftermath of, um, friends and loved ones who have passed away that way, but also like what we can do on a societal level to teach people to be more supportive of each other and, and find different ways. Like I know for myself, I've found different ways over the years of, of whatever it is to like go like oh no this is why you won't do that right like and found reasons of like okay and just made up my own sort of things of like okay well if if like this group of people who uh whatever like are finding a reason to wake up every day you can too and that's how i've done it for myself but that's not for everyone and that's very dark to go like oh, if people who have a life sentence in prison can find a reason to keep living, so can you. Get over it. Like, that's, <laughs> I'm, I'm like a tough love kind of person, and that's not for everybody. And so I think we can find ways to help people help each other and help themselves. Yeah. Uh, because I think right now a lot of it is just like, like calling a hotline clearly is not helping. You know, like that being the path of telling people, call this hotline, that is not, um, that's not, catching it early enough for people to not consider that. So have you seen, because you've been doing this, you said, I think for eight years now, is that Mm -hmm. accurate? So you have seen that it sounds like the frequency for young people doing this. Well, it does seem um, sometimes that suicide is contagious. The message Mm -hmm. that there's help for the suicidal uh, uh, is part of the funeral today. And there's literature on suicide as part of the funeral program or um, mm-hmm. you know messages from the family at the funeral service or the memorial event you know that uh, this is not okay you know we're we're we are devastated by this death there's nothing nothing yeah. admirable about it um, even though it makes them uncomfortable because you don't want to shame the dead person but at the same time right. you don't want to glamorize the the gone too soon uh, metaphor or the idea of oh tragedy is chic um so it's complex and a a really important uh reason why funerals exist i think you know some people today think oh funerals are are expensive they're not that important or my grandfather wasn't religious so we're not going to have a funeral but funerals are Mm -hmm. opportunities for everyone in attendance even people who didn't know the deceased that well to walk out with a new way of being or a new way of seeing their destiny and their own uh, calling in life. Yeah. And, and in my experience also, um, it's a really good way to sort of, 
you kind of find comfort when you're there comforting other people and being comforted by other loved yeah. ones. And, um, and in that way, I, I go back and forth when it comes to death on how I feel about social media, because I think, uh, you know, my grandmother who I'm, I'm very close with, she, and I think she'll be 89 this year. And when she talks about ex-boyfriends and friends and such, she can, in her mind, if she doesn't, hasn't heard otherwise, imagine that they're alive and well and doing whatever, you know what I mean? And I think at this point in her life, she's starting to go, well, who knows where they're at, you know? Um, but with social media, I'm faced all the, like, I'm not able to go, oh, well, I'm sure, you know, my friend Julio from seventh grade, I'm sure he's doing great because I know that that's not true, you know? Um, and at the same time though, I've found that um, mutual friends of friends that have passed in the past couple of years that we've connected and formed new friendships and then become actual friends because um, I've seen that they've posted something and maybe I've heard a good story about them. And then I reached out just to go, Hey, you know, so-and-so spoke really highly of you. And I just want you to know that. And I saw that you're planning something for their services. Like, let me know how I can help. Or like, you know, you're closer to the family. Is there anything like I can't fly out for that, you know, um, unfortunately. Um, so like, what can I do to be supportive to the family since, you know, you're in the, and I've, I've created bonds. So I think it can be really helpful in connecting people and not feeling so alone in their yeah. grieving. Yeah. Because I remember the first time I lost somebody, um, that was like very, very close to me. I remember looking around going like, what are all you people just having normal days for don't you know that the world has crumbled right right, right. <laughs> um and so when you can see in social media posts that other people are dealing with this it it does help and one of the things i loved what you quoted somebody in in that new yorker article where you talked about grieving as a process and it's not something maybe this maybe this next part wasn't in that article but it's something that i've um talked with someone about since that it's you're always grieving. You just, you know, it's sort of like the emotional toll on a daily basis is mm -hmm. lessened. But I love that you quoted somebody saying that there's a grieving process and that they would write letters, you know, intermittently after someone's death to reach out and go, you know, I'm, it's still on my mind. I which think I what love. you're I think thinking of is that um, the poet Emily Dickinson in the 1870s yes. and 80s, um, I think she died, correct me if I'm wrong, I think she died in 1886. Anyway, um, she was a great and gifted condolence letter writer, and a lot of her poetry is about death and loss. But she would write uh, condolence letters in a sequence because she was so intimately mm -hmm. familiar with the fact that this isn't a one-time uh, greeting and a way of saying, hello, I'm connecting with you. This is a, a, a practice and a, a way of continuing connection and extending a loving hand uh, through, through correspondence. So yes, and the, I tell people who've had a loss, and this is relevant even if you can't make it to the funeral, uh, that the, the relationship will continue and you can write that deceased person and then burn the letter and send it up or come up with your own ritual to continue yeah. the conversations and express gratitude for their having lived as long as they did and for doing the, mm -hmm. the best job that they could in whatever time was yeah. allowed. And um, I think I have an ancestor wall in my own home here in Brooklyn. Uh, right by the front door of the house is uh, their 
we're just very blessed to have a lot of family photographs and many of them quite old. So I have my great grandparents and everyone after that on the wall there. I feel like they root for me and I think our dead are available to us. And basically I like to think of them as cheering us on and yeah, to keep the conversations going. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's very rewarding to live that way. And, uh, I think the beauty of the Day of the Dead uh, the, in Mexico um, is something so relevant to us today and a, a, a pattern that we can have with altars of our loved ones in our homes and um, just thanking them for what they taught us over and over yeah. and um, having conversations with them. It's great. It's all good. And the, the truth of which, value of whether or not the soul exists, I happen to feel strongly that the souls of the dead are around us and available. Not everyone feels that way. And the, the truth value of the soul's ex existence is irrelevant to me because if you just mm -hmm. talk to them, that, that, that's good enough. I don't, I, don't, I don't really, I happen to feel they're there, but if, you, if you're not sure, go ahead and try it and see what happens. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, have you have you ever had any experiences that uh, cause you to feel like they do exist? Like, is there anything specific you can point to that makes you go, yeah, that's, I mean, have you about, ever felt visited by it? About four months after my own mother's death, I just tuned into her um, and her voice came to me so quickly um, and, and she said, um, you wouldn't believe how hard they have us working here. <laughs> and I had to kind of chuckle when she said that. But then my brain said to me, oh, you just made that up. And then another part of my intelligence spoke and said, I don't think so. That sounded really a lot like her. And I didn't cognitively have the thought to put those words together. You wouldn't believe how hard they have us working here. Um, and then I said, well, that sort of abides by the wonderful Albert Brooks movie, um, uh, Defending Your Life, which I'd recommend to anybody, in which heaven okay. is presented as a place you work out stuff uh, from your past life and get ready for the next one. So I did have that plot line in my brain, um, and I love that particular movie. But when my mother said that to me, it felt real. So who knows? I'm, I'm content to live with the mystery. I have had brief conversations with some of the people whose funerals I've managed. One woman was disappointed in the way she was dressed for her funeral um, and in the casket. So I don't know what to make of that, but she wasn't mad at me, uh, but she, we did sort of discuss it. <laughs> <laughs> it, the experiences are few and far between, and I don't talk about them very much because some people would find me silly, but I'm certainly open to that kind of communication and uh, fascinated. And definitely my own end-of-life plans include conversations with my two sons about here's where to look for me or uh, be aware of, well, you know, let's try to communicate or see what happens. Um, that would make me happy to be dying and to ha be having those kinds of conversations with those I was leaving behind. I would venture to say that it's not silly 
especially seeing as it's something that people have been discussing <laughs> since like the dawn exactly. of time. <laughs> where are they? It's like, well, not only where are they, but like people across, you know, um, eras and around the world have felt uh, souls of the dead. And I, I mean, so I don't think it's silly yeah, at all. You. you know, I think it's, I think um, the bulk of your listeners will agree. Let's hope if, if they disagree, they can stop <laughs> listening. Well, I, I, um, I serve a lot of atheists. Some of the families I help with their funerals are atheists and say, we don't want God mentioned in any way. And I always say, fine, that's totally cool with me. Uh, but I do sometimes feel like some people protest too much and just to be open to the mystery of life and the mystery of death and see what it is when the time comes uh, is good enough for me. And I'm so happy Agreed. to live on in that atmosphere. It's, it's interesting. So my, my um, father is atheist and, or perhaps agnostic, I'm not sure, but he was very adamant about like no talks of God at my grandfather's funeral. And then he went up and brought up the idea of the invisible hand. <laughs> and my, my mom and my other dad and I were all kind of like, huh, so interesting. That's but um, yeah, it's, I have, I have a very similar, uh, feeling about everything after life related where I kind of feel like uh, whatever I believe and whatever any of us are believe doesn't necessarily impact what actually mm -hmm. is. So like, what's the use in me spending all this time and energy focusing on like what might happen after we pass because whatever I decide on or find or whatever, whatever actually happens that happens whether i feel a certain way about it or not right like i can't think an afterlife into existence right. so so i'm kind of like well i'll just do the best i can yes. while i'm here well for those who have left religion in an or organized religion um there's still a religious structure to rites of passage that is definitely yeah. worth studying and uh duplicating in some more secular way um, I love Jewish funeral protocol because everything is mapped out for the whole grieving year from the burial, uh, which is supposed to be uh, rather hasty, and then the shiva and the seven days of grieving, uh, covering the mirrors and all of those beautiful customs, focusing on, on uh, stories of the loved one and... Um, and then, you know, on into the year anniversary where you unveil the grave marker or the stone. Or There are nice things in the religious rollout that um, definitely are, are uh, worth studying and copying and, and creatively mixing faith traditions and, and also liturgy and language. I, I'm shameless in editing biblical psalms and passages it it i don't think god is going to smite me for uh changing something to make it work for a particular family what kind of things do you change do you have an example i'm so interested oh, I'm trying, i wish i had some some well a lot of psalms uh have references to enemies and uh, warfare so i just take all that out 
and uh, are out, you know, increasingly funeral language for burial can be changed. So instead of committing someone to the ground at a burial, you're uh, at a cremation, you're committing them to the elements. So uh, mm. lots of these things uh, need to be rewritten and updated. And uh, you can always take the word God. And for a family that doesn't want God mentioned, you can just replace the word God with love. May the arms of love, you know, envelop you and all these nice things. Um, I love, um, in Judaism, they refer to the source of peace. So someone who is not a God person, uh, they do believe in peace. So there must be a source of peace. So um, I end a lot of my funerals. May the source of peace grant you peace and grant peace to all who mourn. That's a kind of universal uh, benediction and uh, seems to be comforting to a lot of people who hear me say that as we're about to go back to our cars after a service and we're ready to uh, have their meal after the service, which is always a nice way to embrace life. Return to food. Yeah, it, that's, that's a very, I love that. That's a really beautiful, uh, I think you dropped a few very good tips mm -hmm. in there for people, um, you know, because this is something that not enough people talk about is what makes a good funeral, you know, and um, how, how do you feel, to you, like what makes a good funeral? I think um, one surprise is that um, any kind of procession or movement is something that too frequently we're uh, skipping and missing in our funerals. Uh, because today, increasingly, people don't want to rent five limousines and follow a hearse in, in, a, in a cortege of automobiles. When you look at the great state funerals for John McCain or uh, uh, the first George Bush, um, you see a kind of expensive funeral rollout that we don't have day to day anymore. But to not uh, skip over some kind of way of parading or processing or uh, carrying the weight of our loss by being pallbearers for the, at the casket, um, uh, some kind of exertion and movement is um, key to a good funeral, I think. And nobody's thinking about that anymore. Nobody's thinking, nobody has paused to think that, well, let's carry, let's see if the funeral director will let us lift the casket at some point or carry in. Um, certainly showing up at the crematory um, uh, and witnessing the cremation makes a cremation a much better funeral service um, and a committal uh, to a, a kind of grave at the faces of the retorts. So you can ask your crematory, can we come to the crematory chapel and be with the casket prior to cremation in some, even if it's a closed casket, can we have that moment as a family? Um, and then, um, Acts of bravery or courage and eulogies, I think, are super important speaking. And then music is huge and healing. And it can be music that is irreverent and fun at the end of a service. Uh, you might start a good funeral with more melancholy music. But by the time you depart, whatever uh, event 
at whatever venue, uh, you should have a sort of a slight smile on your face and a feeling of gratitude as you depart. And music can really convey a lot of, of support and emotion. So that's something that too frequently we're, we're not thinking about. And a, a good funeral director can help you find the right music. And with Spotify and Bose speakers, you can have a chamber orchestra with you wherever you roam. So um, music is real important to the funeral, I think. That's very helpful. I, yeah, and that, it's also good to know what you can ask for because I think this is something that people deal with so rarely, hopefully, you know, that especially when you're the one in charge of planning a funeral, that you don't know what you can ask. Yeah. You don't know what the options are. And you also don't know, I think it's really difficult because um, funerals can be pricey. And so you don't know um, when you're being recommended something that is beneficial to the emotional management of a funeral and you don't versus when you're being upsold yep. for lack yep. of a word, you know, my uh, real important thing. And a lot of your listeners uh, need to know that when a death occurs in a hospital or in a home in the care of hospice, you know, this doesn't apply if your grandfather collapses while watching the football game over a, can of beer, um, then you have to call 911. But if you have mm -hmm. a planned death in a hospice supervising the care of that chronically ill person, then uh, when death finally arrives, you can take a moment, not move the body. And um, here's where I think your listeners could come in, because I suspect even if they're not in the leadership role in, within the family about what we're going to do from here, uh, you can be strong and advise the rest of the family to do something at the bedside, take the flowers that are dying in vases on the windowsill and put them in the deceased's hands. Uh, you can wrap the deceased in the sheet that uh, is already on the bed, or you can have a simple king or queen-sized uh, clean sheet on hand to swaddle them in. You slide it under just as if you're changing the bed sheet and get it under them and around them. And just as we swaddle, infants when they're born we swaddle our dead at the end so that when the funeral directors do arrive to make the transfer you can say you know we combed her hair we anointed her with oil we put her favorite perfume on you know whatever is your custom we wrapped her in a beautiful piece of fabric she's done you know we'll meet you at the crematory or wherever the next station is from there uh, and um, that's very cool. And a lot of families tend to minimize that moment. Like, oh, it's happened. Don't touch her. Uh, uh, let's, call, let's call the funeral director and get, get her out. Um, so, and many families have been there the whole way and they're ready for that separation, but still uh, have a cup of tea, take a breath, light a candle, get the ox oxygen machine <laughs> disengaged and, and uh, you know, have, a, have your moment, almost like you're... Um, in uh, you know the Alcott book, uh, Little Women, go back to the 1800s and sit there and savor the moment because you don't have moments like this every day. Yeah, thank you for that. That is, uh, I think that's really helpful. Yeah, because I would never, it would never, and I think that those, um, there are some just sort of moments in life, um, whether whether they be as uh, sort of you know, book endy as, mm -hmm. as a death or a birth. Um, but also 
in between moments where I've definitely reflected and gone like, well, how come I didn't, um, how come I didn't take more time with that? How come when that, when I knew somebody was going through something, um, I didn't take more time to let them speak or hug them longer Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Um, and it is something that I think those more, those moments where you, where you feel really vulnerable and that, you know, are emotionally heavy. Sometimes it's really easy to sort of panic and, uh, recoil for yep. that's the only thing I think of is like you panic and sort of go like, well, maybe I'm being too much. Right. Right. I think a lot of people who are inclined toward progressive funeral are too frequently being discounted in the family and not, um, acknowledged as leaders in, well, what do we do now? What can we do? How has your work uh, influenced your views of the afterlife? But, and I guess with that question for me is also how has it influenced the way that you um, deal with um, death in your personal life? Well, I know I'm going to make a fairly big deal out of the death of my dog. Um, I have a 16 year old cockapoo and I've already come up with a funeral plan. Although he has kidney disease, he's he's rebounding and flies up the staircase of our little house here in Brooklyn uh, to prove to me that he's not dead yet. But um, I have a little burial shroud for him and a wicker casket when the time comes. And I plan with family to take him to the pet crematory in Secaucus, New Jersey, where they let you witness his cremation. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, uh, end of life experiences of any kind are of great interest to me. And I always, even long before I was funeral director, parakeet deaths, gerbil deaths were always uh, important. And those little boxes that banks give you when you get checks are perfect as little caskets for small animals. And Good to know. Decorating the casket, you know, finding... Finding those kinds of vessels is part of it, too. Um, uh, my own views of the afterlife, we kind of discussed, right, with my mother yeah. and um, and all that. I'm trying to think if I have any other stories on that subject. Um, I do think, I don't know about reincarnation. Um, that's just a mystery to me, um, but I do, yeah. I do, because, and it's also confusing to me because I really don't know if you're communicating with someone who has died and they've reincarnated, how can 40 years later you still be in communication to them as you knew them in their ego body? Their, um, I like uh, the work of James von Prague. I think he's smart and savvy on these subjects. He says you can continue to communicate with anybody indefinitely, even if they've been reincarnated and put into a new lifetime. I don't quite follow that, but I'm happy to fly along with that assumption. Well, I guess following that is a bit like, um, to me, it's sort of like an inverse of the the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and how they're, the idea that they are all Uh this, you know, not separate and still the same, but then also separate. Yeah. It's a little bit like an inverse of that, but almost like a parallel universe version of that. Yeah. In communicating with, it's speaking of communication, um, one of the things that we talked about was also um, just in terms of setting up this conversation was um, the communication with somebody 
who has a terminal diagnosis and is planning their funeral? What is, what is that like um, to sit down with somebody who is uh, sort of planning mm -hmm. their, like the end of their life? Yep. Um, those are amazing encounters and I'm meeting with dying people with increased frequency, which leads me to believe that the baby boom generation will be interested in meeting with the funeral director prior to their own death in a very intimate way to make sure that mm -hmm. their um, desires are carried out. Um, I've had phenomenal conversations with dying people and you, you internally, as you're going into them, you feel a little fluttery, like, oh, this is stressful. What if I yeah. say, what if I say the wrong thing? But once you ride through that and get over it, uh, just being real and again, repeating, I'm here for you. I'm going to represent your wishes. I'm going to do everything you're telling me. I'm taking mm -hmm. this incredibly seriously because I know it's vitally important. And I so deeply respect you for taking the time to have this conversation with me. Um, just last week, I was with someone who's soon to be actively dying and very much wanted to share intimate details about their own final wishes, how they wanted their body cared for. I've had other conversations uh, where flowers were arranged and requested. A single calla lily was requested by one woman I was speaking to. And when I drifted into saying, oh, I think the florist makes me order them by five or six, and she said, one calla lily. That's all I want. <laughs> Just one. So as I put that one calla lily in her hand after her death, um, we also made her, she was a wonderful fashion designer who made garments out of fabric remnants from the garment district. So everything she created was made out of scrap. So we made her a burial shroud out of linen tablecloth, vintage linen tablecloth scrap. And uh, just as they were, you know, cut or stained, we, we made them all come in together in a beautiful garment for her. And I revisited her. She was already sort of lapsing into a coma, but I went back into her room and sat by her bedside and said, we've made the shroud just as you wanted. And I'll have the single calla lily. And I'm so glad we met. And I never spoke to her in life again, but when the time came, I really felt like I was her best agent and uh, a, the caretaker she needed me to be. Those are really sacred, uncommonly amazing experiences that I feel very, very privileged to have. And I hope to have them with increased frequency as folks begin to desire uh, more conscious passages, more, more um, as they invest more in how they die and dying well. That's, that's really beautiful. Um, I love that. <laughs> the sweetness of the work is, is amazing. You know, I come home just spinning. It's almost like I, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to bring ecstasy back, the word ecstasy back in a meaningful way to end-of-life experiences because um, these are ecstatic, mo rare moments that are so infused with meaning and power. Um, that uh, just to, on a day-to-day -day basis be walking through these sacred rooms is, is quite incredible work, which is why I think so many men and women want to engage in it today. They, 
They really want to have a meaningful experience uh, with their own families, their own deaths, and then helping society generally um, manage this important passage. For for managing your own um, emotions, and we talked about this a little bit about how it's an ongoing journey, but did you go to a therapist like do you, has your did you go to a therapist before starting this job and like if so how has that relationship changed thank you no one's ever asked me that question i as a young woman had 10 years of group and individual psychotherapy back in the days when insurance would pay for that um mm. so i feel and then i went to psychoanalytic psychotherapy um, training at a psychoanalytic institute in washington dc so I have a lot, I, I have my own experience, which was invaluable um, in helping me as a mother and a, someone who started not thinking I'd ever marry or have a happy life. And now, you know, here we are, um, things worked out. But uh, uh, I think therapy is really important. And I uh, also, if not therapy, then some kind of Buddhist training or uh, Sangha or uh, way of being with others uh, in a, a, a local Buddhist group or yoga retreat um, experience, some kind of way of caring for yourself over and over again that is a practice that you return to and stick with. All that's very important. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and then have you, since you've continued therapy, have you... Um, have you shifted therapists or like, I mean, have, how have your conversations with therapists shifted? I'm, because I think I'm out of therapy now. I had the 10 years and I haven't, uh, then my husband did a little touch up for about, well, we got, we had therapy before we married. We were way out there. Um, so uh, therapy was part of our dating period. Uh, so now I'm out. And I feel okay. Occasionally, my sister, who's a therapist, says, Amy, you need to get back into therapy. How can you process all these deaths? How can you manage? But I feel like I'm doing okay, actually. I feel like um, I'm, uh, I'm not, uh, as long as I have trusted friends who I can speak to confidentially, and uh, a lot of my uh, closest colleagues are funeral celebrants, uh, end-of-life work, hospice volunteers or workers, chaplains, folks like that. So I've surrounded myself with a loving group of, of people who are supporting me and, you know. Uh, the community element, I'm sure, is therapeutic in and of itself. Yes. Um, having that strong of a community that understands what you're going through. Yep. Um, so then that leads us to our last question. What is something you would want to hear a future episode about? Oh, great. Um, let's see. Um, I think, um, you know, suicide is a great topic. Have you done anything? I mean, some kind of person who's in the front lines helping people you know, on a hotline, um, uh, I'd be fascinated by that. Um, it seems like our society is calling for more help. Also, anyone working, I guess I'm drawn to the same kind of themes. People maybe engaged in... Um, prison work or uh, probation, like a probation officer, or anyone okay. in drug counseling. Um, uh, also, uh, 
softer uh, occupations. Uh, I'm very interested in flowers and people who garden <laughs> and uh, mm. florists. I'd be mm -hmm. interested in hearing uh, what that feels like and how you create things. Anyone engaged in creative endeavor who seeks to stay authentic is of interest to me. How you don't fall asleep in almost any job is, is, a, good, <laughs> is a good theme. Um, but um, I've always, I'm always caught up in, in folks in the front lines of crisis management. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. There, uh, my friend Megan was on and she requested to hear from someone who's at the forefront of environmental work um, and what it's like yes. to be there uh, well, that, doing that. That's a great one because I just recently read that so much of environmentalism is, is made toxic today by how much grief there is in it. So to yeah. uh, be in environmental work and not get depressed about it is would enliven or inspire all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was um, this was amazing. Good. Thank you so much, Amy. Yay! <laughs> um, and where can people find you on social media? To oh, follow great. You? I have a new Instagram. I don't have much traction there. I'm actually very active on Facebook. Um, okay. I love Facebook. I'm sorry. I know it's not. I don't want to love Facebook, but I am on it and active there. And then, um, of course, Twitter as well. Okay, beautiful. And what's your I have two, I have, uh, two websites, Lene, um, the inspiredfuneral.com, T-H-E-inspiredfuneral.com, okay. and uh, fitting tribute funeral services, or fittingtributefunerals.com. Uh, okay. You'll find me uh, all over uh, those sites. Perfect. And I will link to that in the uh, description of this episode. Great. So, awesome. I, Thank you, you so much for your You're doing awesome work. Thank you. Well, so are Have you. Have a good Sunday. You too. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of BTS Podcast. I really appreciate your time, and I hope you learned a lot from this episode. Feel free to just let me know what you liked. If you want to tweet or share anything out, please do tag me or BTS Podcast. You can find me at Cook and BTS Podcast at BTS The Podcast across social platforms. Music on this podcast is by Benjamin Betherum. If there's something you'd like to hear a future episode on, do let me know. I am always taking recommendations and suggestions. And do dig into the article in The New Yorker by Mallory Rice with Amy Cunningham. It's really great. And there's just some beautiful information and details shared in there about Amy's approach to condolence letters. Thanks again and have a great day.